This is The Guardian. Today, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor have been fined by the police for attending law-breaking parties during lockdown. What happens now? We're cracking out of the break because we have some breaking news to come from Westminster. It was the news that everyone was waiting for two and a half months ago. Had the Prime Minister misled Parliament when he said there were no parties held in Downing Street, and later that he hadn't attended any, and even later than that, that he didn't realise he was breaking the law when it was found that he actually did go to a party, or few. Through the twists and turns of the Partygate scandal that have dogged government, Boris Johnson has managed to cling on to power. But on Tuesday, in a jaw-dropping moment, the Metropolitan Police criminally sanctioned him and his Chancellor. The very first Prime Minister in the history of the office to have been found to have broken the law while in office. I mean, this is an old office, 10 Downing Street and the Office of Prime Minister. It is centuries old and none of the other scoundrels and rascals going back over centuries who've inhabited that place of work have ever done what Boris Johnson is now found to have done, which is to have broken the rules. The Guardian's Jonathan Friedland isn't as old as the office of 10 Downing Street, but he's certainly been a Westminster watcher for quite some time. And as he notes... We've never seen the likes of this before. It's unprecedented. Let me say immediately that I've paid the fine and I once again offer a full apology. His allies say Johnson is mortified and yet the PM is motoring on and says it just did not occur to him that he was breaching the rules. Rules that he'd written. Will all of the Tory party buy this? And will the British public, who made painful sacrifices at a time when the nation was told, we're all in it together, stand for it? From The Guardian, I'm Noshi Iqbal. Today in Focus, the party's over. Can anyone make Boris Johnson leave? Jonathan Freeland, you're a Guardian columnist and It feels like I've asked you this same question on this same story before. But Johnny, what's just happened? What's just happened is that the police have issued fixed penalty notices to more than one person over a specific lockdown party, meaning a party gathering in the cabinet room in June of 2020. It happened to be the prime minister's birthday that day. There was a gathering in Downing Street. And so because that was in breach of the rules that held for coronavirus at the time where any gathering of two or more people indoors that was not reasonably necessary for work was against the rules, because of that, 
the police have issued a fixed penalty notice, which is different from, you know, being tried in a court and convicted. It's when the police can just hand down a punishment to Boris Johnson, whose birthday it was, and to the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, who, by his account, dropped in, just happened to sort of stumble in. Breaking news. The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, have both received fines from the police for breaking lockdown rules. And so both people have been found guilty of breaking the law. Let's just recap for a second because it is quite difficult to follow all the twists and turns. Officials knock back glasses of wine during a Christmas quiz and a secret Santa. When this story first broke in December, there were consistent denials that any parties or illegal gatherings had taken place while Britain was in lockdown. What I can tell the right honourable gentleman is that Uh, is that all guidance was followed uh, completely during number 10. Then there was an inquiry, ultimately led by Sue Gray, that found 16 events had taken place. Up until that point, the Prime Minister had said the public must wait until the findings of that report were made. Uh, There is simply no way, as he knows, as a lawyer, that I can comment on uh, the investigation that he's... Then, as the inquiry was ready for publication, the Metropolitan Police intervened and then they finally decided to investigate. I can confirm that the Met is now investigating a number of events. Which allowed the Prime Minister to then say, we must wait until the conclusion of that investigation. We see the outcome of the, of the investigations, uh, but of course I, I stick absolutely to what I've said in the past. So does the Prime Minister finally accept that he did indeed attend law-breaking parties? Well, he wouldn't put it as starkly as that, I don't think, because they do find ways of sidestepping around what is absolutely, of course, the basic fact that he did attend law-breaking parties. Thank you very much for for coming. Uh, Today I've received a fixed penalty notice from the Metropolitan Police relating to an event in Downing Street on the 19th of June 2020. And let me say... Boris Johnson gave this statement saying, I've paid my fine, I fully respect the outcome of the investigation, and crucially still making his defence that I'd been chairing tons of very important meetings about COVID... This wasn't me who initiated this, but colleagues of mine wanted to have a brief gathering to pass on their good wishes. It lasted less than 10 minutes. And I have to say, he says, in all frankness, at that time, it did not occur to me this might have been a breach of the rules. And amongst all these engagements on a day that happened to be my birthday, there was a brief gathering in the cabinet room shortly after 2pm, lasting for less than 10 minutes, during which people I work with kindly passed on uh, their good wishes. And I have to say, in all frankness, at that time, it did not occur to me uh, that this might have been a breach of the rules. He's going for, it seems in this statement, the ignorance defence. Now, you'll know that that's no defence in the law. If you or I are hauled up for speeding or parking on uh, you know, a double red line, we can't say we didn't know that was against the rules. Ignorance is no defence. And it's a really a stretch of a defence when it's being offered by the man who wrote the rules himself. But of course the police have found otherwise and I fully respect the outcome of their investigation. Most extreme of all, really, or most important of all, is that these were rules that were created as a matter of life and death. You know, there have been some Tory MPs who've been out there trying to compare it to a parking fine because a fixed penalty notice has that sort of grammar. The way Boris Johnson himself presented them to the country was these were new rules that were necessary to save human lives. There was nothing trivial about them. And yet, in a serial way, these rules were broken in his Downing Street. 
This does make you the first serving Prime Minister to have been found to have broken the law. It's a serious matter. Will you resign? I have, of course, paid the, uh, the FPN and I apologise once again for uh, the mistake that I made. For the Chancellor, it was a much more interesting little psychodrama being played out because he took much longer to come out with the statement and there was a flurry of talk around Westminster late on the evening of Tuesday when these um, criminal sanctions were handed down where the talk that perhaps Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, was going to make a big principal point of resigning, saying, yes, I have been found to have broken the law. I cannot serve as the nation's chancellor as a lawbreaker. I am therefore resigning. And if he did that, that would have piled on the pressure on the prime minister. But he didn't do that. He came out and said, yeah, I too have paid my fine. Again, briefing uh, that it was really inadvertent in his case. You can make of that what you like. But the pair of them are both sticking with the argument that it is legitimate for them to stay in office even though they've broken the law. It feels bizarre to ask how seismic this is, but Johnny, how seismic is it? Well, it should be. It should be absolutely seismic in the sense of the tremors that bring an earthquake that eventually swallows up this prime minister. It should be that. The trouble is that there isn't some objective, you know, court of law that decides whether or not he stays in his job. Instead, that is, under our parliamentary system, wholly in the hands of the House of Commons, in which he has a big majority. And therefore, it's in the hands of his own Tory MPs. And they would have to decide they have lost confidence in him and vote him out. They are the only people who have the power to remove him from office until, of course, there's a general election in which that power then is in the hands of every voter. But for now, it's up to them. And so far, the signs are that they are in no mood to do that. Do you think the Prime Minister broke the law? I do not think the Prime Minister broke the law. And I think that what we are talking about here is a gathering for nine minutes during which colleagues mark the birthday of another colleague. Their hope, I think, is to wait it out and hope that the country is bored of this and thinks there are other more important issues to deal with, chief among them the war in Ukraine and, of course, this growing cost of living crisis and rising inflation. Well, there were a few resignations early this year from figures high up in the government, but both within Cabinet and the wider Conservative Party, the mood now seems relatively united behind the PM. Johnny, what's being said publicly and who's saying it? Well, so his cabinet uh, ministers have been out saying the central argument that he is this great war leader, that Vladimir Putin thinks he's the leader of the pro-Ukrainian forces in the world. And therefore, it, it would be terribly reckless in a time of war to cause instability by throwing the captain overboard and we just can't do it. Maybe we would have done it before, but now is just not the time and it's, we have far more serious things to do. But you're not saying this morning, are you, that if it weren't for the war, he would have to go because he broke the rules, but because there is a war, he can stay. Because it's not a rule that applied to any previous uh, leader, including um, Margaret Thatcher. To be clear, I don't think it's just because of the war. I think you judge somebody 
in their entirety. Maybe clear from my tone that I don't buy any of this. I think it's ridiculous. You don't have to go back to deep history. And for example, the Prime Minister's idol, Winston Churchill, was installed because the previous Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, was booted out, not just at a time of war, but when Britain was at war, which, you know, you may notice Britain is not at war at the moment. The Prime Minister has not sent in a single soldier or sailor or, you know, pilot into battle. Do you think that there is any dissent within the Tory party that doesn't buy this? And might there still be enough letters demanding a vote of no confidence in Johnson submitted to Graham Brady? It's a great question and the most important question because that's where we go sort of next in this. And at the moment, the signs are scant. So as you and I speak, I think one Tory MP, Nigel Mills, has said this is too much and Johnson has to go. I think this is the kind of line in the sand point. There's no way out now. And there's never been a prime minister in history being fined in office for breaking the law like this. The rest are closing ranks. And I don't think that at any time he thought that he was breaking the law. And including in that those people who previously were saying that he should go. So Roger Gale, who was scathing and is no fan of Boris Johnson, long-time backbench MP, previously saying Johnson has to go, now saying, no, no, the times are too serious, too grave because of Ukraine, as if people in Kiev will be terribly disturbed by Boris Johnson exiting the stage. And I will not say or do anything that will give one crumb of comfort to the man who is creating war crimes in Ukraine. And obviously what would matter more would be cabinet resignations. That's when you really know somebody, a prime minister is in trouble. If somebody's prepared to be the first out and to pay the price of their own career by quitting, that comes down partly, by the way, to the kind of people he's appointed to his cabinet. There are so many there who know their careers will be over when Johnson is gone, that no future prime minister would ever appoint you know, the likes of Nadine Dorries or Jacob Rees-Mogg, and just like before, Pretty Patel. These were really, you know, government of no talents. And those people do not have prospects once Johnson's gone. And that buys you some loyalty. hope for number 10 might be that people have moved on from this story. I mean, so much has happened since February. Do you think Partygate still resonates with the public in the same way it did just a couple of months ago? No, I don't, uh, unfortunately. I come to that conclusion quite reluctantly. I'm a serial sort of phone-in hopper when it comes to these things. I do listen to those phone-in shows and they're quite revealing, I find, because the ones who felt outraged are even more outraged. They are deeply angry. I mean, the the phone calls that, that are coming in are so sort of moving and harrowing. It's not even fury. It's just total sadness. My poor old mum uh, passed away. So I'm not getting upset. At the end of uh, October last year. Yeah. But she didn't, she just, she, I know she had a, uh, 90 years, but she played by the rules basically two, two years in her house on her own. I know you can't change things, but it's like... I just so angry towards people that just took it flippantly that they told us not to do things. But there is also, I detect, more people who are just weary of it and who do think, OK, it's gone on for too long. How much longer are we going to go and talk about these parties? They should not go. And I really ha- want to have a go at you. The amount of time you've been spending on trying to get rid of them, either on Partygate or on Wallpapergate and now on... Uh, 
PCN gate or whatever it is. Boris Johnson's strategy, which was to delay, 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 see this spin out for as long as possible, a strategy instantly helped out by the Metropolitan Police who swooped in and said, no, no, you can't publish the Sue Gray report now in full because we want to do our own investigation. That bought him such helpful time. His whole strategy was predicated on that notion that people get tired of these things and bored of it. And I worry that there are signs of that. The numbers demanding he resign, they're still high. I think three out of five people, but they're a bit lower than they were a couple of months ago. And he's benefited from the fact that it hasn't come out in one big shock revelation, but instead has been drip, drip, drip over several months. So did he mislead the Commons, albeit, in your view, by accident? No, not knowingly, is is, uh, my view. So he did mislead the Commons, but he didn't mean to. Johnny, Parliament is back from Easter recess on Tuesday, which is an institution that the Prime Minister now seems to have lied to. And under the ministerial code that the PM is the arbiter of, ministers guilty of misleading the House are expected to resign. This doesn't look like it's happening anytime soon. So what can we expect when the House is back in session? Well, I think we've had a not just one preview or dress rehearsal, but many, because there have been several you know, key occasions, either following revelations in the press or even just the, the preliminary or you know partial Sue Gray account. And now we're used to the sort of theatre of it where Keir Starmer, you know, forensically nails down exactly the offence that Boris Johnson's guilty of. Well, there we have it. After months of deceit and deception, the pathetic spectacle of a man who's run out of road. Ian Blackford for the SNP fulminates and says, this is terrible and you must go. The public know this is a man they can no longer trust. He has been investigated by the police. He misled the House. And Boris Johnson, you know, depending on the mood, hangs his head a little bit low and does his guilty schoolboy act. Mr Speaker, I want to apologise. I know that millions of people across this country have made extraordinary sacrifices. And then various Tory MPs get up and say, yes, this is very, very bad. I really understand the pain of my constituents, but vaccine rollout, Ukraine... And he's a wonderful guy. And I think that's what we'll go through again. It's a kind of ritual that we are now wearily used to. But there is potentially another hurdle not that far away. We do have uh, local elections in early May. And one line that is repeatedly told about Johnson is that whatever unconscionable mess he gets himself into, his appeal to the Conservative Party is that he connects with the public and he wins elections. How crucial could those May results be? Well, they could and they should, but I fear that we're already being sucked into a rather helpful for Boris Johnson expectations management game, which is they are telling us again and again, oh, those local elections are going to be awful. And so there is a thing in politics, which is that once you've talked about something long enough and it's no longer a shock, it does get sort of priced in. I can just hear Grant Shapps going on the Today Prague in the morning after going, Yep, it was a tough night for the Conservatives. I think we always knew it would be. We were aware that we would have to take a knock. It often happens at midterm. The voters want to give us a bloody nose. I understand that. We're listening. But the work goes on and no one better to lead us than Boris Johnson. You know, I mean, you could say it in your sleep. That's what they'll say. And the the more 
talk there is of how bad the low collections are going to be. For one thing, what if actually they're bad but not terrible? Then suddenly Grant Chaps is on going, actually, they're better than the you lot, the pundits told us they would be, even though it was them who said they would be bad. And on, on they go. So I, I think he will think that that is manageable, that sort of normal politics in a way. It would have to be absolutely cataclysmic uh, for people to think, oh, my word, he's lost his touch. Coming up, when it comes to Partygate revelations and criminal sanctions, could the worst still be yet to come? Johnny, Partygate still isn't even finished here. We're still waiting. We're still waiting for the Sue Gray report. And there could be more fines coming from the Met as well. How much worse could this still get for the PM? It could get worse. It would be very awkward for me if they start piling up those fixed penalty notices. You know, if he gets into four or five of them, bad. I think, you know, people are prepared to let off one mistake once is a misfortune twice is starting to look careless, you know. Seems as if the police are working their way through this party by party. And Lord knows that's quite a big job because I think it's at least a dozen gatherings inside government buildings, Downing Street and, uh, and so on, that are under investigation. And the Sue Gray report, I think, really could hurt him if there are some memorable kind of almost visceral details in there. And my example for that is always that detail that came out of the report, actually one of the few parties that Boris Johnson was not at, but that was in Downing Street on the Friday night on the eve of the funeral of Prince Philip. And it was said that people were wheeling in suitcases full of booze. That detail lodged in people's minds because it was such an egregious contrast. And it stayed with people. As they deal with the latest shocking instalment in the Partygate saga that has today forced the Prime Minister to apologise to the Queen. And I just think there might be a really wounding detail in there that could hurt Boris Johnson and make... What has to happen is Tory MPs have to think, come the next general election, there is no way we can go in with this guy. It will dog us at every turn and at every event, every hustings, every doorstep, we we just can't do it because they're going to remember he was the man who did X. That's the sort of thing I would be looking out for, is a detail that makes people think, you know what, it's all said and done, this is indefensible. John, if we just take stock for a moment, not just on Boris Johnson's legacy, but on his impact on British politics... One of his very first acts as PM was to prorogue Parliament, which was found to be illegal. And one of his last, maybe, maybe in breaking laws his government wrote and then lying about it for months. What does that say about the health of our democracy? Well, it's a good point to think about how he began. He never really hid his disdain and uh, contempt for democratic norms by suspending Parliament because he didn't like the views of the House of Commons, it was such a violation of our constitution that the Supreme Court found against him 11 
to zero, fully unanimous verdict. But that was a measure of the man, that he does ride roughshod over democratic norms. That's where the dishonesty is so central, because a democratic life can't function if people are happy to lie. It isn't just a sort of pleasing ornament to democracy. It is central. We can't make decisions about what country we are and about what we're going to do as a country if we don't have a shared basis of facts to proceed on. That was so obviously pivotally true when fighting a life-threatening disease, and yet he has been cavalier throughout about democratic norms, uh, you know, suspending parliament, uh, the big lie on the side of the bus, putting in cronies into crucial previously independent positions, the acts he is taking to the Electoral Commission, changing the rules on political protest to make it much, much harder. Johnson has a kind of Victor Orban of Hungary type streak where he thinks that power belongs with the man in charge and all those institutions and norms that are there to hold in check the Prime Minister, he has contempt for those. And I think there is something so potent about the image of him partying in number 10 while those people who he rules were alone and unable to be with their most intimate loved ones in the moment of greatest peril, moment of death for many of them. And it's such a powerful image because it says that's how he sees us. That there's a rule for him and power belongs with him and the rest of us just have to take it. Johnny, thank you so much. My pleasure. That was Jonathan Friedland. You can read his columns and all the latest on Partygate at theguardian.com. And for even more, do tune in to Politics Weekly today with John Harris. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Sammy Kent. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Mythley Rao and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. <laughs>